When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You wanted law and order in this town. You've got it. Randy! Randy! Those who would trade our freedom for the soup kitchen of the welfare state have told us they have a utopian solution of peace without victory. They call their policy accommodation. And they say if we'll only avoid any direct confrontation with the enemy, he'll forget his evil ways and learn to love us. There are cynics who say that a party platform is something that no one bothers to read and it doesn't very often amount to much. Whether it is different this time than it has ever been before, I believe the Republican Party has a platform that is a banner of bold, unmistakable colors with no pale pastel shades. A while back along the campaign trail, I was doing a question and answer session. When a little girl, couldn't have been more than six or seven years old, stood up, asked a question I'd heard before, but coming from her, it threw me. She said, why do you want to be president? I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. March 30th, 1981. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state? Or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West? We welcome change and openness. The advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Ronald Wilson Reagan, February 6, 1911, to June the 5th, 2004, was an American politician who served as the 40th president of the United States from 1981 to 1989. The life of Ronald Reagan, coming soon on 10 American Presidents. I'm Chris Stewart from the History of China podcast, and I approve this message. 
This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's back in Birmingham, sunny Birmingham, down by the canals. Today, I'm joined by TV pundit Laura Babcock in Hamilton in Canada, journalist Emma Burnell in London, and political consultant Doug Levy in San Francisco. Say hello, folks. Hi, Hello. Hi. In a week that has seen Germ- the German Football League restart to empty stadiums, we look at the spread of COVID-19 at home and around the world. I just want to ask you a question on Brazil. Who's, uh, Brazil. Who's now, yes, in third position, place now, catching up to Russia in second place for a number of cases. Are you finally considering a travel ban from, from Brazil and Latin America? We are considering it. Uh, we hope that... Uh, we're not going to have a problem. Uh, the governor of Florida is doing very, very well testing, it's in particular Florida, because a big majority come into Florida. Uh, Brazil has gone more or less herd. You know what that is, herd. And they're having problems. By the way, you know, when you say that we lead in cases, that's because we have more testing than anybody else. So we test much more than anybody else. Again, we're close to 14 million. It was said 12, 12 and a half. It's actually, I think, close to 14 million now. And so we have 14 million tests in Germany. If they do 2 million, that's a lot. And others are doing 1 million. So if you're testing 14 million people, you're going to find many more cases. Many of these people aren't very sick, but they still go down as a case. So actually, the number of cases, and we're also a much bigger country than most. So when we have a lot of cases, I don't look at that as a bad thing. I look at that as, in a certain respect, as being a good thing, because it means our testing is much better. So if we were testing a million people instead of 14 million people, we would have far few cases, right? So I view it as a badge of honor. Really, it's a badge of honor. Donald Trump sees COVID as a badge of honor, or COVID deaths anyway, uh, the amount of them as some kind of badge of honor. Does he have a slight point when it comes to testing? Because how can we believe the numbers from somewhere like China or Russia? Surely. He has a point. Not really. The testing <laughs> has come a long way, but and the manufacturing of the testing supplies is finally getting to a point where in many places there are tests available. The problem, though, is we still have this crazy quilt of lack of standards. So it's very difficult for a public health official in California, for example, to gauge the risk to the people in California if the adjacent states are using a different testing system. I mean, that's something which I think people fail to understand the significance of. By not doing things the way all of the plans and preparations had anticipated, we are lacking the basic information that would enable us to to reopen things in a logical and safe way. 
this you know abandonment of national coordination has been a a nightmare and it's only going to continue being a nightmare as long as the central coordination is absent now in russia and china you have central coordination of a very different nature i think the unfortunate result of the us abandoning leadership both within the united states and globally is that i think china is pretty much in a position now to dictate how the rest of the world is going to respond to covid-19 that's the reality well let's come back onto china a, a little bit later but i think it's uh, a salient point that we need to look at the post kind of covid world and and how it's going to shape geopolitics here's quebec premier francois le go back in the good old days at the beginning of april His approval rating among Quebecers was then 95%. As we say in English, April showers bring May flowers. He was announcing that he could see light at the end of the COVID-19 tunnel, that the lockdown could be over in a few weeks. Then it all went wrong. The outbreak in Quebec's long-term care facilities exploded. Horror stories appeared of residents abandoned by staff unable to get to the bathroom for days even starving to death fatalities skyrocket several homes have 100% infection rates among residents and staff the situation highlighted the large gap between what the quebec government promised and what it delivered Laura, uh, canada and the united states have agreed to extend uh, the closure of their shared border for non-essential travel for another 30 days. Uh, and Canadians seem to have rallied behind their government. Quick question though, Laura, why are so many people getting sick and dying in Montreal? The city is now the seventh deadliest place on the world uh, for COVID-19 deaths. And it has some 64% of the entire province's death toll. What is so special or so grisly about Montreal? Do we have any idea? That's a really good question. I actually spent most of my childhood in Montreal. It's an island. It's fairly densely populated, not compared to some other urban centers around the world, but for Canada it is. And Quebec, the province that Montreal is part of, has has been the province most affected by this. Part of the reasoning behind that was that they had a later kind of March break where people were coming back when uh you know the rest of the country had started to put in the precautions and the 14 day quarantine after travel Quebec was a little bit behind that beat so we have seen in Canada more cases in Quebec as i mentioned Montreal has that sort of dense population it actually has a very if you've been to Montreal it's very much a european style city a lot of public piazzas a lot of uh touch <laughs> you know it's a it's a city where you kiss each other when you say hi it has that beautiful culture and so i think as a more intimate city and a more populous city and having been part of that sort of quebec delay that's probably a lot of what is going on most of the other cases in quebec have to do with the congregate living situations uh the military has even been brought into long term care homes to help with that uh so you know we we have seen across canada a little different from the US, us in the sense that we do have a centralized strategy towards covid we do have a trusted centralized leadership although you know there's certainly a lot of criticism coming in now that that uh, people have had a chance to look at all of the federal government response but one of the things that we have seen is a coordination between the federal government and the provincial governments more so than you see with the states in the US uh but each province is allowed to respond to covid and open based on its own numbers so 
compare so Vancouver, which is also a very dense urban population, how far ahead they are in BC compared to Quebec is something that the whole country is just really trying to understand. How can BC out on the West Coast be opening up to the extent that it is? And we still have so many cases in Montreal. That being said, though, just even today, there was kind of a, a call to the country that we're opening up too fast. There's an inevitable second wave that's going to come based on all previous pandemics. And there is a real concern that even Vancouver, with all of its tracing and all of its testing, uh, that BC and Vancouver have opened up too quickly. So Canada still doesn't have enough testing. We still don't have enough contact tracing. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to be optimistic and cautious, and we feel like we're better off than our neighbors to the south. And we want that border to stay closed as long as possible for that reason. But I don't think that we are by any sense out of the woods. Staying with you just, just for now, I've never actually been to Montreal. I've been to Ottawa as the closest I ever got, uh, or Gatineau, maybe the, the closest I ever, I ever got to, to Montreal. But is one of the reasons why Montreal has suffered so badly because it has uh, quite an ethnically diverse population. It seems to be that one of the stings in the tail for COVID-19 is that people of colour in the United Kingdom, in the United States, etc., uh, seem to be at the at the sharp end of this disease. That could very much be a part of it. You know, uh, I haven't lived in Montreal for a long time. Demographically, I remember as a child, there was a lot of people from originally from North Africa and countries in the Middle East in Montreal. So there could very much be that part uh, of the of the story of what's going on there. Montreal did push back when the provincial government did try to open up schools across the province uh, and daycares and that in Montreal. Montreal just said, no, we're not we're not ready for that yet. They recognize that they are in a more uh, deleterious situation. I mean, the one thing that I can say about Canada to this point is that it has been evidence-based. It has been fairly calm compared to some of the militarized protests we've seen in the U.S. But I mean, even just today, there's another large protest in downtown Toronto at our provincial um, legislature of people who want to open up this province faster here in Ontario. Uh, and so we are starting to see that. We are starting to see people feeling as though it's an anti-freedom conversation as opposed to just a public health crisis. Uh, and that is no doubt because we get so much of our American media. We even had a Canadian journalist today who's a right-leaning uh, columnist rather than journalist put out a call for ha- for our top medical officer to be fired because she didn't do enough. So, I mean, it's starting to get more fractious and um, more partisan in Canada and dealing with this pandemic now, unfortunately. Emma, Laura talked about schools reopening up in Canada. The UK government has had to back down over its plans to reopen schools on June the 1st. Could you tell us what the hell happened? Uh, the track and trace isn't ready. And until it is, we can't really open the schools. It's just it wouldn't be safe for teachers. It wouldn't be safe for the kids. Um, kids are less likely to get sick and they're less likely to get very sick, but they could absolutely be vectors of infection. Um, and, you know, if the, if these schools are not safely able to be aware of who has covid and who's been in touch with people who have covid then the kids would just you'd end up with a bunch of with a super spreader in every school basically emma who exactly questioned uh the government wish to open up uh the schools on on june the first where did that opposition come from um it was led by a sort of coalition really of um teachers 
unions and parents. I mean, all three groups had a majority of saying, we don't yet believe this is safe. There are people who desperately want to send their kids back to school um, for very obvious reasons. <laughs> there are um, teachers who desperately want to get back to work for very obvious reasons. Nobody wants not to have the schools open, but equally nobody wants to be putting lives at risk. And that is a balance. Doug, um, the wearing of the face mask, which is one way of which, let's say, uh, the Italian and Spanish governments have started to reopen their societies, has become um, somewhat of a political flashpoint in the US. Why so? Uh, because we have idiots uh, at the helm. I mean, it's pretty much that, just that. The reassuring thing is that um, the data is strongly suggesting that a large number of Americans are wearing face coverings, are being careful about getting too close to others. And in fact, now that we're really looking back on how things have played out, many people stopped going to their offices and going shopping and so on, even before it was mandated by the government. Um, that's very reassuring. And we're also seeing in places where stores have opened, a lot of people are still just staying home because they're not comfortable yet. And even some businesses are saying, OK, the government says we can open, but we're not ready yet. So the voluntary compliance seems to be a recognition that the advice coming from the White House is not grounded on science. And I mean, the, the sad thing is that as each day goes, the guidance from the president of the United States is more and more absurd. But also he sees this as wearing a face mask. He, he can't project his normal strong guy image, can he? That is fundamentally well, one of the ways that this is breaking down. Yeah. The, the crazy thing is that, that at least where I'm from, uh, wearing a mask is not just seen as a good thing, but it's seen as a sign of respect. It's, a, it, it, it's just something that we're doing. I see very few people in my neighborhood not walking around with a face covering. It's not a big deal. And in fact, some of us are having fun with different fabrics and designs and so on. And that's the right way to do it. We are seeing governors doing public appearances with a face mask, modeling the kind of behavior that we want to see. And, and Nancy Pelosi, she's accessorizing, isn't she, with her face mask? She's looking very, very cool. <laughs> Every single outfit, jewelry and face mask to match. I, honestly, her, her face mask game is off the chart. <laughs> you had the same here with, with Boris Johnson. There is this weird um, connotation in the minds of some people that macho equals not cautious about disease. Uh, and unable to um, get rid of that, even in the midst of a global pandemic, even you know when we saw our leader in ICU, and Trump, you know, Trump and, and Johnson are quite close. So Howie's not thinking, you know what? Maybe a mask is slightly less weak looking than a ventilator. <laughs> I have to say, though, in Canada, I've been very frustrated with the discussion around the mask because. Uh, for so long, we were told literally until today, actually, that no, no need for a mask, right? Uh, social distance, no need for a mask. Everyone was staying home. Now that they're opening back up, people are going out. They're saying, if you can't social distance, wear a mask. My argument is when I go out once or twice a week, I try to minimize my exposure out there. 
I wear a mask. I make my kids wear a mask and so many other people don't wear it. But I cannot socially distance two meters or, or you know, six feet inside a shopping aisle where there's not six feet between us. So when somebody walks by me without a mask on, I think to myself, you know, it might be nice that you plan on socially distancing, but it technically isn't possible in a lot of the activities we're now able to do. So you have to wear a mask de facto. The advice here is develop into wear a mask indoors. I don't wear a mask when I go for my daily walk or whatever, but um, I always wear a mask and gloves in the supermarket. You know, if I'm in a place where it's inevitable that I'm going to pass by somebody close, I've got the mask and maybe I slide it off, but I'm very careful to handle it only by the straps. By the way, there's been some really good science in the last two weeks showing how even just a simple cloth covering is a very significant level of protection, protecting other people from your germs. And there is even some protection from others. You know, if everybody had an N95 and knew how to use it, great, but that's not the reality. In fact, many of the N95s that are being sold out there are actually defective or not good. So you're better off with a comfortable cloth and you'll have like 80% protection if you wear it consistently. My nine-year-old son said to me yesterday, and it just broke my heart, he said, Mommy, why are we wearing a mask uh, when so many other people aren't bothering to when we were at the grocery store? And I said to him, you know what? We can't control other people's behavior, but if even half of us do this, you know, we are helping to protect the people that we love. And that's all we can do, right? We have to make a personal decision for the good of the collective, um, whether or not people around us opt in or not wise words to your, to your little one there, Laura. Um, but if people are wearing masks, and as Doug said, uh, many people aren't going to businesses that have opened up. With a, and we have the summer holidays approaching. Uh, many European nations, looking at Greece and Spain, have begun to announce plans to kickstart their tourism industries. But will anybody travel or even fly for the foreseeable future? Who wants to jump in and answer that first? Well, I can tell you that this week, Air Canada, our, our major, it used to be a crown corporation, but it's our major carrier. It laid off 20,000 people. Uh, and we're seeing some of the airlines coming up with sort of a self, they, they've put it forward an idea that, okay, forget the social distancing on flights. They can't make the math work on that economically. Uh, they'll come up with some other ways to ensure as much safety as they can, but they're kind of self-regulating, right? We're seeing a lot of industries saying, okay, here's how we think we can get back to work. Here's how we think we can make it happen. And I think people are starting to accept the risk. They're starting to say, okay, let's do it. So I actually wouldn't be surprised if in the next year or so uh, we start to see at least leisure travel or, or family, re, you know, family travel happen, I think some people very much think, you know what, if I'm going to catch it, I'm going to catch it. I'd rather catch it and put to Canada during the winter than sit through a Canadian winter, or I would rather see my family than not, you know. And so I think we're going to see people accepting an elevated level of risk. I think we'll see some airlines uh, get people back up in the air. Uh, and, you know, I, for myself, would love to travel to Quebec. It's my favorite place to go. But I'm I'm certainly not going to do any travel that is not completely, absolutely necessary. So, uh, you know, I think we're going to see more people traveling than we would expect, given the science. I think that some people will absolutely travel. But I think if you look at um, what happened yesterday in the UK, um, Rolls-Royce, who are a huge employer, particularly in the Midlands, um, laid off, I think it was 10,000 workers. And that is because of their projections of people aren't buying planes. 
So there's a long-term expectation that flying will be considerably down uh, across the industry. Um, I think that it's not just whether people feel safe going on planes, but if you're only going to somewhere for a week and they have a two-week quarantine rule, there's no point. <laughs> I was supposed to be in New York this summer, as you know, Roy Fields. Um, and I, uh, you know, if I had to quarantine for the two weeks that I'd booked to be out there, you know, I would have literally just gone to the airport and back. There's no point in that. So I think that there's a lot more impact on just um, whether whether you feel safe in the airplane, but also whether the experience that you're paying for is the one that you're going to get. Well, in fact, the U.S. authorities published an updated uh, travel advisory map that literally showed the entire world as having a significant spread of COVID-19. Uh, interestingly, there were only travel restrictions by the U.S. on, I believe it was four countries. Um, but the, the what's even more important for Americans is that I can't I don't think there's a single country that is welcoming Americans right now. Uh, you know, that 14 day quarantine that, that Emma just referred to. Uh, I mean, there are states within the United States that are saying if you come from New York or some, some other places, or I think a few places, any state, you have to self quarantine, self isolate for 14 days. That makes travel virtually impossible. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. While most world leaders ask their citizens to stay home, Brazil's president has been hitting the streets to chat with supporters and encourage them to keep the economy going. What I've been hearing from people is that they want to work. Jair Bolsonaro has compared the new coronavirus to a little flu and condemned confinement measures he says could lead to chaos, a message that resonates with his supporters. This is Brazil, and we stand with Bolsonaro, our leader. In the past few days, among the many who held motorcades in support of Bolsonaro's strategy was Karina Lemes. Why are authorities uniting against a president who is simply warning that the economy will collapse? 
Europeia vai entrar em colapso. Karina is talking about state governors and city mayors who have, for the most part, condemned Bolsonaro's downplaying attitude and continue imposing lockdown rules recommended by the country's health ministry. A careful calculation on the president's part, according to analysts. He knows his government ends if the economy collapses, and so he is using the economy to say he's by people's side, while allowing the health ministry to take all measures, including social distancing rules. COVID-19 has been particularly hard in the United States, the United Kingdom, in Russia and Brazil. So is there a link between populism and the spread of the disease? On Thursday, Russia's official death toll passed 3,000 after 127 people were recorded to have died of the virus in the last 24 hours. And uh, new, new confirmed cases are skyrocketing in Brazil. And it's estimated that Brazil will reach 120,000 deaths by the end of the summer and will actually catch America in the next uh, four weeks or so. Um, what is the link that we can make between these countries and specifically the spread of the uh, pandemic? And is it fair or is it overly easy just to say populism, people just denying uh, the the importance, the, the danger of the disease, and, and that's it? Um, Emma, why don't you start us on this round of the, the conversation? Well, I think it goes back to what I was just saying about that strong man image. You know, that's what these countries have in common, this... Um, macho leadership from the top that then filters down into the attitudes so you know we there um in britain we all go on about the blitz spirit or the dunkirk spirit all of that nonsense and it just goes back to this sort of national exceptionalism that goes alongside that kind of nationalist populism where you just believe that you're a special kind of people um and refuse therefore to take sensible measures and actually a special kind of people are people who are much more careful and take special measures. So I think um, if you look at, you know, but the way that Bolsonaro in particular, I think Bolsonaro has been even worse than Trump. And I say that advisedly knowing that Doug's uh, now champing at the bit. Um, but Bolsonaro is just, you know, I mean, in handshaking thousands of people in crowds in what, and not just at the beginning, not, not in February, in March, in April. Mm. And he's still somewhat of a COVID-19 uh, denier. And he's had two health ministers walk off the job because they just, just can't deal with him. Um, somebody was just about to jump in. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that it's when you bring it up in terms of that macho male thing, in addition to the populism, one of the things that Trudeau, of course, has always been assailed for from the right is that he's a feminist. He's feminist in chief. He's he's too, uh, too much like a woman, too, you know, too emotive, too sensitive, all that stuff. He's been getting that forever. But I think what we've seen through this is that people have really liked the fact that he has not put these preconditions on what we need to do as a country based on his own sense of masculinity. You know, if he's got to wear a mask, he'll wear a mask. He might wear, you know, fashion masks, you know, um, but if he's got to wear a sweater during a press conference, he's not going to be so manly that he can't go grab a sweater. He literally did that. So, you know, this is, uh, if, if there is that, that um, toxic masculinity, as they call it, aspect to this, uh, then I, that could be one of the things that has been a bit of a saving grace for Canada is that at least that's not getting in the way of processing strategy or evidence. Uh, Doug, 
the rest of the world has been totally aghast with um, America's um, denial initially of the of the seriousness of COVID nineteen, and then with your president's many utterances on on a daily basis. The fact that the world is looking at America askew, and really you, America squandered any pretense of leadership when it comes to uh, confronting COVID nineteen. As as that world critique is that penetrated into right-wing media at all, that the rest of the world do not think that America's been handling this crisis well at all? Sadly, I don't think so. Um, It is frightening when I peruse the media from uh, places that have a different point of view from California, where I am, or Doug, I'm just going to quickly, I'm just quickly just going to jump in and say one thing, because I really should have said this in my question to you. Um, the one thing which I've been surprised about with American media, and I'm talking about mainstream media and even right-leaning uh, media, is that there has been a recognition that some countries have done well with this. I've heard many American news outlets talk about Germany and South Korea. And the reason why that is significant is because, as, as Emma kind of said, one of the reasons why America has this uh, crisis is because of perceived American exceptionalism. And American media never looks for leads from the rest of the world. America culturally doesn't. So for to, so to hear even Donald Trump say that Germany has done well, which he said in one uh, press, release, uh, press conference last week, was a shock, a total shock, as you were. Well, the, the, the part that uh, I, I think the nuance here is that over the past, I'd say in, in March and early April, there was definitely, mm-hmm. I mean, there was no way to deny the reality of the numbers as the numbers kept getting really bad here and weren't as bad in places like South Korea. No media could ignore that. What's happening now is many of the media, mostly on the right, but I'm sure this is happening on the left as well, are playing numbers games. And and for example, I saw an essay yesterday that I am positive is going to start getting passed around by a lot of people. We've got these people who are either legitimately statistics experts or in at least one case, somebody who claims to be an expert and actually isn't, arguing that the way the public health folks look at the COVID-19 numbers is mistaken somehow, or the numbers are invalid. You've heard last week we had a lot of argument about whether the CDC was counting the deaths correctly. And the part that was so appalling is that any, any of us who have covered public health before understood right away that the discrepancy that they were pointing out as a falsity was that you've got one set of numbers, which are the current cases reported in something close to real time versus a separate CDC tracker of death records, which lag two, three months behind. Different numbers for different purposes, of course, they're going to be in conflict. But if you look at one and say, oh, these two numbers disagree, therefore they're all false. That's not good, but that's what's happening. People have shaken shaken things up so that nobody knows what numbers are real anywhere. 
Talking about real numbers, there's been criticism of the World Health Organization uh, and member states have agreed that there should be an impartial, independent and comprehensive probe um, into the world, the world Health Organization's actions, at least at the start of the outbreak. America has questioned the organization and Trump um, has threatened to take away his, his funding. Um, is this is is there valid criticism to be made for the World Health Organization? Why don't you answer that, Laura? Yeah, there is. And so Trudeau's approach and the Canadian government's approach to this has been uh, there is valid criticism. We need to look at that, but we're still going to double down in terms of our commitment to funding because it is what we have. And it's, you know, it's valuable in this time of pandemic. Uh, as same as Trudeau's response has been to some of the Canadian lots and lots of the Canadian money being taken advantage of or fraud activity. He said, we're just going to get the money out and we'll deal with the fraudsters later. So the the approach here has been, of course, I mean, there, there needs to be a postmortem, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but we have to look at how this happened, what was the information, how reliable was the information, you know, uh, any time that there's a crisis of this nature, the biggest in a century, I think we have to look at everybody's response and were they quick enough? Was the World Health Organization operating optimally? Was something else going on with China? We have to look at all of that. But from the idea of saying fix yourself dramatically in a month or you lose a huge chunk of funding like Trump is doing is just more of that ridiculous, nonsensical bombast that we see from the White House every day, you know, uh, threatening world structures and all the rest of it that's only adding stress and chaos to this. I mean, the World Health Organization isn't perfect. The United Nations isn't perfect. Canadians are fairly practical. We get that. But it doesn't mean that we walk away from our international partners during an international crisis, right? Uh, so it's just, it makes no sense to to kind of kick them while they're down. It makes sense to support them and fix them and, and take a clear-eyed look at how how we've all dealt with this. It also is important to point out that the the errors by the World Health Organization that Trump cites are false. Uh, I mean, the World Health Organization did not declare this a global pandemic fast enough, but it was World Health Organization advisories that got people's attention in late January. Now, the CDC was already on top of this earlier, and the White House wasn't listening. That's the bigger problem. But the World Health Organization, whether they were declaring it the emergency in time, that that's a valid criticism. But they were disseminating the information. They were coordinating the way that somebody has to when this is a global problem. It doesn't respect boundaries and borders. COVID-19 has killed more than 32,000 people in Italy and, of course, it's wrecked the economy and its healthcare system. As the country slowly leaves lockdown, officials have warned that there will be a wave of mental health issues that it will need to contend with. Um, what are going to be some of the hidden costs of the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown? We talked about global travel before, um, but how will the world of work change? Um, how about you answer that one, Emma? Oh, you always make me go first. <laughs> Laura's gagging for that one. <laughs> yeah, like, Laura, I spent Laura, if you want to go first, you go first, my Canadian friend. I spent all day on Zoom calls, literally talking about the changes to the world of work with all my clients who are both private and public sector organizations. And the change is uh, not catastrophic in the sense that there are going to be those who can adapt 
and can form a really long tail online in terms of e-commerce and all that good stuff. Uh, and there are those that are simply, if they don't adapt, are going to be out of business. We've seen the closing down of major retailers. The bricks and mortar dependent businesses are going to suffer. As one of my clients said this morning, we are never going back. There's not going to be uh, a commitment to massive travel and massive conventions and all this kind of in-person structure. Uh, it, it just makes no sense. There's We have proven that we can do differently. It's much more affordable, much more efficient, better for the environment, better for balance, uh, and for for the human experience. As long as we can figure out a way to connect through technology, I do not see us reverting back to the way that things were in the past. So how is it going to change the world of work? Uh, I think we're going to prioritize those inhuman, those connections that we are absolutely necessary for collaboration and productivity. And we will find a workaround to be able to make those happen. But in terms of uh, trying to put the, the horse and the carriage back in the barn, nobody I'm talking to sees that as even remotely viable, nor does it make any kind of sense. You know, we were forced to adapt, uh, you know, the, the sort of technological graph was already a hockey stick graph. We were already shooting up, uh, but it just accelerated it completely. So what we will see, I think, are little pieces of the way it used to be, where they are most strategic, uh, where they are most necessary, but all the companies I'm talking to have a clear eye to a new way of operating. Now that brings with it a lot of social justice issues. Uh, it bring, if you're going to ask a workforce to work from home, is the workforce then carrying the heat and the hydro and all of the those kind of operating costs for the companies? Are they now are workers now going to be taking over the overhead costs, and are companies going to get away with that? Are people going to be asked to go to a four day work week, but still given five days worth of work? Uh, you know. How, how can, what are the risks of exploitation within this new system? And so there's sort of two tracks going on. The innovative, the adaptable are going to do fine and they will restructure what the world's going to look like. Uh, but how do we ensure that we don't get into a whole new era of human rights abuses as we reconfigure our global working? I think one of the things that is um, clear, efficiency has been the watchword for so long now. And everything was about narrowing, narrowing, narrowing uh, the just in time supply chain uh, and contingency got almost written out. And I think that's one of the key things that's going to have to change in, in so many workplaces, so many economies. And that's going to have a huge impact to a lot of different ways of working um, through all the way through supply chains. So it's not just about the one big employer, but all the other people that they knock onto. Because if we're not talking about just-in-time supply chains anymore, and the UK is probably going to leave um, Europe with no deal at the end of this year now, and that will largely be less imp- uh, not less impactful than it would have been, but the impact can be hidden of that because if we're going to lose 7% of our economy anyway and we have to get rid of just-in-time supply chains anyway, then it makes having a no-deal Brexit it uh, more hideable because what's another one percent loss um so i think it's going to have impacts that will reverse a lot of those um you know things that were done in the name of efficiency um i think in some more positive ways uh, we are going to start to value um, people who are the least currently the least valued, and that's the same thing with inefficiency. You know, all these zero-hour contracts, um, people who've turned out to be the absolutely essential workers. Um, I I don't see us going back to a place where they are as abused as they are now. 
Um, but you're right, it may but, be but, that we push the abuse into other places, Laura. <laughs> but, but Emma, you could easily see uh, a scenario whereby the new kind of uh, working underclass are the people that need to go away from go away from home to work you know they they potentially are the ones who are going to be um unclean dirty uh you want to be at home if this pandemic um goes on for, for years let's say uh, and, and we, we become normalized to it and people in the knowledge economy can work from home you could easily see there's a new line of segregation between those people who have to leave the home. Well, there already is, isn't there? Um, right. yeah, that's what's been made very, very clear by this crisis, that there are, you know, this is, we're not all in this together. And those who do have to leave their homes to work, those who do physical labour, manual labour, uh, or work in places that cannot close like hospitals, uh, eventually schools, etc., um, you know, we, we treat them differently. The point is, is that I think society has realised that there is more value to care workers than there used to be, for example. Uh, and if these people are, you know, if we are going to continue to have a care economy that outsources care of older people or people with special needs, uh, physical or mental, then actually having seen people put their lives at risk and, and seen those people we love's lives be at risk uh, because people are so poor they had to keep going to those jobs whether they had symptoms or not, then I think that that is what has changed. Now, I'm not saying that capitalism isn't going to find a way to exploit people because it's kind of what capitalism does, but I am saying that it might find different people to exploit uh, and that the movement of that exploitation of labour will change. I think it's I think at a critical juncture on this. Sorry, I just have to say that we are at a critical juncture where we are recreating what that new economy looks like. And there's only so much of a window before people are going to fall into habits and patterns here. And so while I agree that uh, we have seen a new value on those people who essentially did the jobs we were too afraid to do, because social isolation is a privilege to be able to work from home. Uh, and so while we see an increased value and we realize maybe on some philosophical level that we are only as strong as the weakest among us, which is a good lesson for this world to learn that we must all support each other or all of us are at risk. I, I do see us forming new working ha habits and patterns and still oppressing people unless we have a very strong call that we accept none of that going forward, right? And that's going to take one heck of a lot of coordination. And uh, to be frank, a good president in the United States from the world's bully pulpit who actually believes in that, that's going to be critical as well. Yeah, and, and going back to what we were saying earlier, will the United States be the bully pulpit? Will they be the leaders of the free world or of any world? Um, the free world being actually the more contentious thing because my argument, and I think a lot of people's argument might be that the the leaders of the world now are going to be China, um, ironically. And we're, you know, so Doug, I think, said earlier that we're, uh, we're looking to China for a lot of the leadership around this pandemic. But they're not a free country. They're an authoritarian country. Um, so we may be looking at a leadership model that doesn't follow the classic free enterprise, despite not being what I think, Karl Marx would recognise as communism either. <laughs> I, I think you raise a, a very interesting philosophical uh, point there, Emma. And I want to ask Doug uh, this, this one question whilst in my brain, and then I'll, maybe we'll, we'll come back on to what Chinese leadership of the world could, could look like 
uh, before before we end up. Uh, Doug, um, cities have been um, knowledge hubs and seen as attractive destinations for the young for the last 30 years or throughout the Western world. Um, and as well as them being these kind of knowledge hubs, they're also entertainment and leisure hubs. Um, you're obviously uh, a big fan of the uh, restaurant industry. How the heck can this industry cope with the ravages of COVID-19? How will it change? How will it have to change? And what will it look like post-COVID-19? That is probably the greatest visible tragedy here. I mean, in addition to the tens of thousands of lives lost, uh, I heard one expert uh, yesterday say that the best scenario in the United States is that only half of the restaurants will disappear forever. That's a that's that's on the good side, and sadly, I think he's probably right. Uh, you know, many of these businesses were operating on very tight margins to begin with, and they had to shut down. It wasn't their choice, although. I think most responsible restaurant owners would have shut down voluntarily given the information. Um, you know, they've now been shut down for two, three months, maybe more. Uh, this is where a government bailout of some sort absolutely makes sense. But even then, how do you make it go? We're not going to have people comfortable sitting close to each other, not for a long time. There's going to be a much higher cost I mean, if, if, you're, if you've got to reduce the number of people in your restaurant by 50% or 75% as it is in some places, uh, you're not going to have four times as many seatings. So you're not even going to make up anything close to what you used to bring in. Rents are high. It, there's only so much that you can make money on takeout. I, I think the best possibilities are uh, there's one restaurant in Seattle. It was a very fancy fine dining place. They have used this time to split it into three. So a shared kitchen, but three different takeout places operating from the same footprint. Well, that's a way to bring in revenue, but it's not going to employ as many people as the fancy restaurant did. And again, that's like the best of the scenarios. It's, it's really sad. And, that, and when you think about the people who are affected by that too, that's part of what makes this so annoying. We should all take a look at what Jose Andres is doing though, with the World Central Kitchen, because that man has brilliantly come up with ways to employ a lot of the restaurant workers during the shutdown, making food for frontline workers around the country. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. We need more of that. I just to say, Andres has been great too at trying to get the farm produce to the people who need it, because we've got at least I've heard stories in America, but I'm sure it's true of Canada as well. We are letting all of that great food just sit and rot because we don't have that restaurant system where it was before. So uh, I just wanted to say that the successful restaurants that I'm in touch with 
are ones that have have a robust uh, relationship. They really have a strong, loyal customer base. They move to a takeout delivery kind of model, and they're pushing for streets to be open so that they can serve not fifty, not a hundred percent of what they used to, but they can at least have some physical distancing opportunities. Uh, and so we're looking at that possibly even this summer, opening up some of our streets and our urban areas here in Canada to allow restaurants to try to create that customer experience again. So the German Bundesliga, the football league, um, started again this week, end to empty stadiums. Is there a strong argument that as part of opening up economies and getting back to some level of normalcy, that sport should be the forefront of that? Should we be allowing our sporting leagues to open up again, but play behind closed doors so at least we can see them on TV? How important will that be for morale? Um, you don't want to go first, Emma. You told me very clearly you don't want to go first. I always ask you first. <laughs> I have to take a... I have to disagree with Doug a little bit. I, I like that he believes that people won't feel comfortable sitting next to each other anytime soon. But I have definitely heard from some people, especially sporting fans who, you know, don't care. They would go to see their team and they would sit and they, they kind of have this uh, this idea of, you know, who cares? You know, it's, it's going to get me one way or another. I'd rather get me drunk having fun with my friends watching a game. So I, so I think there there is going to be an appetite for that kind of close quarter. Uh, the other thing is with the sports teams, you asked off the top, Royfield, what will be the ramifications long term of COVID-19? We haven't really touched on the mental health ramifications, the PTSD, the the addiction issues we're dealing with. I mean, there is going to be a tremendous amount of cost from a mental health perspective in ways we can't even imagine at this point, even just the schools being closed. When schools have been closed in the past, there's been almost generational uh, issues with that from, from that lack of nurturing and access and violence in the home and all kinds of other stuff. So I think that sports, if it provides some sort of relief and it can be done in a safe way, good. Let's throw anything into the mix that allows people to find a little bit of happiness as long as, you know, these teams playing, sure, the teams are tested, the athletes are tested, they're treated like superstars right from the beginning. The NBA players could have access to COVID tests when nobody else could get them. Sure, they're going to treat these super athletes as the investments they are. But what about all the teams? What about the support workers? What about all the people cleaning the locker room? That's where I'm concerned, right? Great to have these super athletes who are totally tested playing on the field together, not touching each other when they don't have to. Um, but what about the entire infrastructure around that? That's where I'm concerned about getting sports back in. Nice to have the distraction, probably good for mental health, but uh, it's bigger than just those stars on the field. What made me cross yesterday was the um, Minister for Culture, Media and Sport. Culture, Media and Sport gave our daily briefing yesterday and went wanged on and on and on about bloody football. Nothing about theatre, nothing about culture, nothing about anything other than sodding football. Um, by which, for my uh, American and Canadian friends, I mean soccer, obviously. Um, no, you mean football. I do. Trust me, it's football in our house all day long. <laughs> but um, yeah, they're, they're, I don't, I don't disagree that there are important things that are about sort of national coming together things like football. But there are other things that feed the soul 
Um, and it, you know, a little bit of balance, please. You know, something on the bloody theatre. I used to go to the theatre two or three nights a week. You know, this is genuinely having an effect on my mental health, and it's having an effect on an enormous community of people I care a great deal about. Uh, Doug, let's just end up with you in in the United States. Um, I think when we look at potential state intervention, intervention, sorry, to help. Uh, various economies post COVID nineteen, uh, you can you can clearly see that the United Kingdom and Canada will, are more likely to be the countries that might do that. Um, which industries do you think the, the the US government will have to give special attention to in the post COVID nineteen world? Well, it already has given special love to the airline industry, and there's a lot of debate over, and there'll be a lot of fighting over whether the airline industry. Uh, is using the funds correctly um, or needs more. Uh, they've given all kinds of special love to uh, some members of the pharmaceutical industry and some defense contractors who have been engaged to hire uh, to produce ventilators and PPE. Uh, there should be some special attention to more small businesses, uh, which include mm. restaurants. Uh, and, and that and that's really the, the point I was going to get round to saying. So I'm glad you made made that obvious link. That one of the problems with the restaurant industry is that it's so diverse, isn't it? That it's so many small business owners, and they don't have this, the same lobbying power of, let's say, the aero industry or or tech. One of the surprising things was that at the start of this pandemic emergency, at least when the US government recognised it to be the danger that it was, that quite quickly Congress and then Trump undersigned it, agreed to giving US citizens or US citizens a sum of money. Do you think that there will be that uh, political will to continue to fund Americans as opposed to American corporations? post-COVID-19? I don't think there's going to be another stimulus check like that first round for a lot of reasons, mostly political. Uh, the, the unfortunate uh, thing is that the White House manipulated the stimulus process so that it became part of the Trump campaign. I mean, it's really kind of horrifying. The checks actually have, you know, Donald Trump's name in the memo space. And on top of that, a letter was sent from the White House or from, from, the, from the IRS, the tax authority, but it's a letter from President Trump talking about how much money you were given. And I don't think anybody in Congress is going to go along with allowing that to happen again. But the small businesses do need more help. There's a lot that needs to happen. I think the words coming out of the White House and the Treasury Department and from Capitol Hill were right. We need to get money into the hands of working Americans through, you know, we have to support the businesses so that paychecks can start flowing. That's a good thing. The problem is that our systems are impossibly complicated. And I don't know how a typical restaurant owner is going to be able to navigate the process to get funds that have already been allocated, let alone any coming down the pike. That's a huge problem. It's got to be fixed. On Doug's point about the, that personal check um, not coming out again, Spain, correct me if I'm wrong, just instituted basic income. 
And that has been part of the discussion here in Canada, uh, as long as they keep getting government checks. Of course, you've had some people on the right say, oh, it's going to lead to laziness and entitlement and all the rest of it. Uh, but I think the evidence shows that basic income might just be one of the answers emerging from this global mess, which is to give everybody the opportunity to both survive, but also to contribute back into the market, to have that money, to be able to support theater, to support restaurants. I mean, it just makes sense on so many levels. So that's something that I think, uh, is going to be discussed a lot more. We've had some we've had some pilots here that got cut off prematurely when governments changed, but I think we need to keep looking at that as a possible solution. It's a remarkably efficient solution, yeah. hmm. but but needs a, a different uh, mindset if you're going to completely go down that road. We are going to end this and go on to our takeaways of the last seven days, Doug. You know what I love about you, Doug? It's not only just your unbridled optimism of life and your knowledge of all things political. It's, you know, your love of wine. I'm sure I know that your take over the last seven days is going to be something to do with your love of the grapes. Sir. <laughs> tell me I'm tell me I'm wrong, Doug. You can't. You're going to set you're going to pine about the beauty of drinking wine at home during the lockdown. That's going to be your takeaway, isn't it? Close. Um, I want to give a shout out to the folks at um, the Jordan Winery in Healdsburg, California, in Sonoma. Uh, they uh, very cleverly, very intelligently um, were able to open their property up for people to come and walk around, uh, you know, even before they're allowed to serve or sell. I think they can sell wine for take home, but they're not allowed to do tastings yet or not for a while but they've got lots of open space and making open space available for people to go in a safe environment is something we need more of and the wine industry is very much small business and about people celebrating together and i applaud them for doing that and i hope we see a lot more of that Doug, I feel like I strong-armed you into that takeaway the last seven days. What was your takeaway really? My takeaway really is that in the absence of leadership from the government, we have seen some very impressive private sector solutions. Um, everything from, um, I got an email from a chef in San Francisco about a program that was set up to, so that, you know, Folks like me can buy meals for people who can't afford food. And the people that are collecting the money are using the funds to support restaurant workers. That's a great thing. And that's entirely private sector. There's a lot like that. Uh, the farmers mm. who are shifting from selling to restaurants instead selling to consumers. When I bought my vegetable box last week, I bought two. The second one went to a food bank. Lots of people are doing things like that. It is a great opportunity to support each other. And we're doing it. Well done, Doug. Um, how about you over there in Hamilton? 
Well, actually, it's it's kind of because of two events that happened in the past week. One was I celebrated my 25th wedding anniversary, 21st wedding anniversary with my husband. A scaled down affair. Thankfully, we we did a huge bash, like a second wedding with all the people that we loved last year for our 20th. <laughs> we didn't wait till the 25th, and boy, I'm ever happy about that because I I, I can't kind of conceive of something like that being possible uh, with our new reality in terms of just people with abandon dancing and hugging. Of all generations right so so i cherish that memory but we did have a 21st anniversary smaller scale we actually had a local restaurant uh provide the food so we could support them and we had a nice time but it so that confirmed to me once again the value of human relationship you know and commitment and i put out something on social media about when you find someone that you respect um, and admire and makes you laugh, then no matter what you kind of go through, there's that lasting sense of of appreciation for them and joy, you know, no matter how things get. So, uh, so that was one thing. But the other thing was I interviewed somebody who's sort of in charge of the LGBTQ advisory committee for our city here. And just when he was talking about the fact that pride celebrations are virtual, this June, uh, and that they can't hug, that there's that sense of that collective solidarity and, and touch and reaffirmation of their value and their community. I mean, that not only brought him and I to tears on the air, but my daughter put something in our window in solidarity to pride. Um, so I just feel as though maybe it's a bit of emotional, not such a, a great thing, but I, I think this is teaching us all to have tremendous uh, appreciation for the humans in our life that want to touch us, that can touch us, that love us. Uh, so that's my takeaway of the week, just appreciation for human touch. Oh, goodness. That brought a tear to the eye. Uh, Doug, you were good. Laura's beaten you slightly. But uh, so Emma, right, let's see if you can top that. No pressure. Uh, no, I'm going to go completely the other direction. Um, I think regular listeners have probably gathered that uh, me and a few friends, since this has been going on, uh, have a Friday night regular date where we watch a dreadful film. Um, and we, we, you know, you, no film gets in if it's too good. Um, so <laughs> this week's film, the film we watched last week, we have been calling it Sexy Jerry Adams. Um, because that's what we kind of thought it was. No, none of us had seen it. We'd only seen stills of it. And it's Pierce Brosnan clearly dressed as Jerry Adams. And we all got it into our heads that this film was basically a kind of in, a important film about uh, the Good Friday Agreement and all of that process. Turns out, no. Um, it's a Jackie Chan film where Jackie Chan is up against Liam who is clearly Sexy Jerry Adams. Um, and it's kind of Jackie Chan as a Rambo-style character having a karate fight with Sexy Jerry Adams. It's the most baffling, bonkers, bizarre way to spend two hours of my life. And God, that's exactly what I needed at the end of that week. <laughs> Uh, I must confess, Royfield, uh, inspired by what you just said, Emma, we did binge watch the entire series of Money Heist over the span of 
Spanish Netflix series paper chase. Uh, another crazy place, but good to go, right? We need theater. <laughs> exactly, absolutely. I'm so looking forward to tomorrow because we're watching my favorite ever bad movie, uh, which is just the most wonderful. It's Rutger Hauer's best film. Uh, it's called Split Second. He plays a guy called Harley Stone who lives on coffee, chocolate, and adrenaline. <laughs> and I can't. <laughs> Don't we all these days? <laughs> <laughs> well, add in the wine that I'll definitely be devouring whilst watching Split Second. So yeah, my recommendation is take two hours out, stop watching all these this classic, um, you know, or the reading the important books and watching the important films you've never seen. Just watch something utterly devoid of sense and enjoy the hell out of it. <laughs> my takeaway is, um, and after giving Doug a bit of a hard time telling him what he was going to say, his takeaway was. I realized when I was blathering on, I didn't even have one myself. So well done to you, Doug, for actually linking what I said and coming up with something. Um, I'm kind of locked down in the center of Birmingham at the moment in my brother's flat. Uh, it, it's empty. Here I am. And I utterly adore it. I adore his little flat, but also I adore where I am. And... I'm incredibly proud of, of my of my hometown, and I'm, and I think it's one of the gem, gems of England, and one of the reasons why Birmingham became the second city of the United Kingdom is because it sits at the heart of the canal network. So at the start of the Industrial Revolution, um, it was ideally placed for the new industries to be able to ship their goods around the UK, and the canals were the motorways, the freeways. Um, of their time of the 18th century. Some 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, this kind of, they were not seen as a jewel. They were seen as ugly, forgotten, uh, rubbish. There's somewhere you just threw your rubbish. And now, with all these flats, homes, restaurants, bars, um, etc., bedecking them, it's utterly gorgeous. And the weather has been fantastic. I've been going for walks every day by myself, listening to podcasts along the banks of the canals. And to think that I can walk, strictly speaking, I can walk from here all the way to Camden, because in Camden in London, because it connects uh, Birmingham to Camden that way. It kind of beggars the belief. The, the um, engineering, the thought, thought that went on 250 years ago, for people to actually construct this, and then for them to be reinvented in the last 30 years and for my city to, to be reborn on, on the back of its industrial heritage is something I'm, I'm incredibly proud of. And there's, and Birmingham has been very good with this whole COVID-19 lockdown. If I go into the, the very centre of town, it doesn't matter what time of the day it is, it's dead. It's utterly dead. However, you will see a disproportionate amount of people walking along the canals and everybody's incredibly respectful when they have to uh, pass somebody. They'll stop, pause, acknowledge and, and kind of walk, walk around them. Um, but it's been quite beautiful to see so many Brummies uh, walking along the canals, but still respecting kind of social distance. So that's my takeaway of, of the week that I'm, I'm very privileged and blessed to be stopping in my brother's place where I am. And it's in a very beautiful bit of uh, of my hometown dog levy you went first with your takeaway of the last seven days why don't you tell us where people can find you on social media 
I am uh, at SFDoug on Twitter or on Facebook. You can find me by searching for Doug Levy News, D-O-U-G-L-E-V-Y-N-E-W-S. How about you, Laura Babcock? I am Laura Babcock on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, LinkedIn. And can I just say, I know you kind of know this, but I did watch you on TV the other day. I, I got the stream working. There you were uh, chatting away to somebody, asking them hard-hitting questions and stuff. So I was like, oh, I know her. She's on the telly. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how about you, Emma? Uh, I am at Emma Burnell underscore on Twitter and Emma Burnell on LinkedIn. I think I'm Emma Burnell underscore on Instagram. I'm not very good at Instagram. I'm a words person. <laughs> and I can be found at Royfield if you can be bothered with my badly written tweets. All right, that's been us. Uh, we are mid-Atlantic. Um, go on to our sh- our website, not our show. Go on to our website, which is midatlanticshow.com. And why don't you post us your uh, lockdown stories or comments, and we will include them on the next episode. We actually did have two for this one, but I thought let's have a few more and then we can all respond to them on the next episode. That's me, Roy Field, with uh, best friend Emma, best friend Laura, and my best pal, my old mucker, Doug, saying bye-bye. Goodbye, everybody. Take care, look after yourself, stay safe. Bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code mom.